On hearing it, many disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you, said Jesus to the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though he was one of the twelve, was later to betray him. The word of our Lord. Well, let's talk about Jesus. How's that? Before we do, I want to um, uh, get into some thoughts some really smart people, and then we'll get to Jesus. But uh, sociologists have observed something, and uh, many have, about Americans. So get ready to hear about yourself. And that is that we are a very highly individualistic people, and uh, we take uh, orders from no one, unless we're in the military, thank you. Uh, We're we're not prone to that. The the idea of an outside authority telling us what to do is not something that um, we respond to maybe uh, maybe as readily as, as other people in other cultures. And, um, but there's an irony that goes with that, and that is that, and this is something that uh, Alex de Tocqueville just wrote about Americans back in the 1830s, is that Americans, with all that individualism, they live with a lot of anxiety. And uh, that the very individualism that makes them think that they're so different causes this anxiety inside of them, and they wonder how they look to other people. And, and uh, I want to quote from, uh, this is a, a recent book I, I read by Matthew Crawford, uh, who writes on this stuff. He says, we cannot look to custom or established authority. This is talking about Americans. So we look around to see what everyone else thinks. Is that really individualism? When you're looking around, you see the irony here? Uh, the demand to be an individual makes us feel anxious. And the remedy, ironically enough, is conformity. We want to know if we are, what's that word? Normal. Or what's average and how do I relate to average or whatever that is. I think that describes Americans really well. And, you know, looking inside myself, I see some of those traits. And so the irony is that the more, the more individualistic we are, the more uh, anxious we are. Now, some, some others have written, uh, Sherry Turkle among them, who, who has written on social media, but just imagine what social media does to that truth right there. It expands our anxiety. And we have ways now of uh, presenting ourselves to the world and uh, uh, becoming individualistic to the world, but always wondering if somebody likes us. So if you like this sermon today, I'm going to post it later, and I want you to, you know, do your thing there, like it. And then I'll feel good. You see how it works. 
So uh, we play to the crowd, and in so doing, we become more conformed to the crowd. Individualism is a myth. So it goes. Because he didn't care about what the crowds thought. And the, here's, the, here's the real irony of, of this whole thing, is that um, Jesus did get his established authority from outside of himself, unlike us Americans. Oh, he's so backward. <laughs> how, could he, how could he do that? His father in heaven was the one he got all of his identity from. The one who said, beloved child in whom I am well pleased. It had to come from outside of himself. Try to produce that within yourself. If I say that to myself, it, it, I know myself. I, lose my, I don't have good credibility with myself. <laughs> but I hear it from the outside, from someone who loves me and knows everything, and it really shapes who I am. This is Jesus. This is what he does, and we need Jesus uh, in our lives. So we feed upon him. We're going to talk about what that means this morning. And we are able to stand up against the expectations of others. We gather each week because we live in a crazy world and we need to hear one more time that God says who we are. We need to hear it daily. Um, So we're going to look at this passage today from John. And I want to say, I want to put in a little... um, a little teaser for a week, and I think I saw Amber right back there. And Amber, yeah, she's shrinking down in her chair. And uh, next week, I'm going to have Amber come up here with me, and I'm going to give her this microphone. And the reason I'm doing that is because she has newly discovered this identity in Christ thing, and she's really good at And I I don't want to build her up too much because I put pressure on her, the pressure of expectations, you know. But we're going to hear her story uh, next week. And then two weeks, I'm going to get Mark Neely up here, our youth pastor, and we're going to talk about this stuff in relationship to uh, teens and families. So here's the next two weeks. All right. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage Guess what? In three different ways. How'd you, you, were on, you were wondering, weren't you? Three ways. Jesus rejects the expectations of the crowd. And then we have this choking on Jesus thing going on. And then it ends with feeding on Jesus. So there's the, there's the flow. Jesus, I'm going to go take you back into chapter 6. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible. It's 71 verses long. And... Uh, So I have to go back a bit here to get the context. Early in the chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's an amazing event. And um, it's amazing in many ways. Uh, There there was the two fish and the five loaves, or the five loaves and two fish. I can't remember. Anyway, when it was left over, there were 12 baskets of, of food. And people were very, very impressed with Jesus, I mean, super impressed. And isn't that why, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what Jesus wanted? Well, apparently not. Um, The crowds came and they were going to force themselves upon him to make him king. And knowing Jesus, because we've seen this before in this, just in this series in Mark chapter one, where Jesus went off by himself when he was really, really popular And everyone is looking for you, was what his disciples said. Same kind of thing here. Everyone is looking for Jesus. And he goes because of that, he goes off by himself to be alone with his father. Where is he going to get his identity from? Where are you going to get your identity from? You see. 
he goes off by himself. Now, what was going on with the feeding of the 5,000? And uh, Jesus was terribly misunderstood. And you could look at his whole earthly life as being terribly misunderstood. And so if any of you feel terribly misunderstood, you've got a friend in Jesus. But they, they thought that he would be, because of what he, this great miracle that he did, they thought he would be a great uh, king in, in how they defined king, somebody who could provide what people need. And they assumed that he would want to be that kind of king. And the truth was that what he was doing here, this is where theologians would go with this, is that this feeding of the 5,000 was a sign of the kingdom that had come from heaven down to earth, that he was the true manna. Jesus himself was the true manna who had come down from heaven, the true bread that came down from heaven. And this is a sign of the kingdom that God is up to some good stuff. But he was misunderstood. They wanted to turn him into an earthly king, and he would not go there. That was their expectation, and he was able to resist it. Jesus continually, by our standards, or by the standards of places like Iowa and New Hampshire that are coming up, Jesus continually shoots himself in the foot when he gets some good political momentum going. He just just does it over and over and over again. And it says something about the heart of Jesus, and it says something about the heart of our politicians, but I'm not going there. All right. Choking on Jesus. So we're going to spend a little more time on this one. That was just an overview to get us up to speed here. Choking on Jesus, and really what we're talking about here is choking on Jesus' words. Gagging on what he says. And I know I've done it, and I'll get to that in my story. But here's how it comes in two different groups in this chapter. And we, this is all before the passage that we read. But the first group is called the Jews. And it's, it's, you have to break that down because everybody in this story is Jewish, including Jesus, including John the author. There's no one in this story that is not Jewish, but John the author uses that, that phrase, the Jews, to mean the Jewish leaders who were continually like the rules police of the day. And they were coming to challenge Jesus because, you know, he was uh, this outsider. And they're, they're wanting to make sure that he has the right stuff. And uh, so that's that's who we're talking about here when he says the Jews. He apparently offends them by saying things like, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. And uh, if you want life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says that, what would you say? I mean, honestly, you've got to hear the extremes of this. And in fact, the, uh, the pagan world, we have this from some pagan authors in uh, Roman times, so this is later, but as the church gathered on Sunday mornings in, in homes, and they, they did this thing called communion, where, you know, the breaking of the, the bread and the serving of the cup, which we did last week, they considered the, the early Christians cannibalistic. Because they had heard, they, these were closed off things that Christians only, this is what Christians do. They have this, these rites of um, eating bread. And, I mean, it's all, I mean, it sound, to them it sounded cannibalistic. So Christians have been misunderstood. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be misunderstood. It just happens. All right. So they were really offended by that. But even more, the Jews were offended by Jesus' continual um, linking of himself to his father, meaning to God the Father. And it was such an intimacy, uh, a language of intimacy, 
that it was greatly offensive. And so that at another time they say, who are you making yourself out to be? Uh, it sounds like you're making yourself out to be God. And that was very, very offensive to a Jew who believed there was only one God, not defined as a trinity, but as one person. So Jesus offended these Jews. And if I could... Um, um, find my glasses, if I can read this passage here, this will set us up. This is right before the passage that was read for us this morning. Jesus said to them, that is to these Jews, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's his word for himself, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. That's offensive. And then he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up, her up, on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, or her. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. You see how he's using this Father language in reference to his, his own identity. So that no one who feeds on me live because... Er, so that the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and died, but he who feeds or she who feeds on this bread will live forever. I mean, it's, it's really strong, direct language. It's very spiritual language. Jesus referring to himself, and they find it extremely offensive, and they gag. I mean, that's literally on here. They can't take it. They walk away. So the second group, though, this is the one that's really interesting to us, I think. I think more interesting, at least. And that's the disciples. Now, you have to realize that there were the 12 disciples. We're going to get to that. But then there were these other disciples. We don't know how many, but there were others who were following Jesus around. And these disciples begin to grumble. They, they are offended by Jesus. These are followers of Jesus offended by Jesus. Can you imagine such a thing? I think you can. I, I, think, I think you know what it means to read something that Jesus said and, you know, shake your head at least. Yeah. And they walk away from him. They grumble. When you're, uh, what is it called, support base grumbles, you're in trouble if you're a politician, Right? But Jesus has this thing in front of him, and he doesn't care who walks away. Well, he cares, but he doesn't really care because what he really cares about is his father. That's where his identity comes from. He's not getting his identity horizontally, but vertically, playing to an audience of one. You'll see how offensive he is here. These are people who really like Jesus as long as fill in the blank. As long as he doesn't, you know, confront me on one of my idols, I really like Jesus. I could follow Jesus up to that point. And then they're still in control, and so they decide to walk away. They love the miracles, but, you know, these hard teachings. So what we read here is that this is a hard teaching, and the hard teaching part means they, they didn't maybe understand it, but what it really means is they didn't accept it. They couldn't accept it. And so Jesus hears their grumbling, as the text says, and he, this is, no, this, this might, this, this might offend you. He seems to chase them off by saying to them, does that offend you? What I just said about me coming down from heaven, does that offend you? 
that's nothing compared with what's going to happen in the future. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait, I'll really offend you, is what Jesus says, because I'm going to be ascended to the Father. I came down, and I'm going to be ascended too. And when he says ascended too, he means starting at the cross. And there is nothing more unimaginable to the Jewish mindset than a person of God dying on a cross. This is a scandal. You want to be offended? Wait till you see me dying on the cross, and then I'll offend you. (laughs) This is Jesus' tone of voice, or his attitude in his text. All the commentators will say this. I mean, I'm not making this up. So he seems to be chasing them off. These people who follow Jesus to a point but couldn't accept his words, he chases them off. These are good church people who just can't take everything Jesus is saying. And so they, they leave. Um. The scandal of the cross. Paul says the scandal of the cross is, that the cross is a scandal to the Jews. They can't imagine such a thing as a God-blessed man dying on a cross. And it's foolishness to the Greeks who have such an emphasis on philosophy. Their, their minds cannot grasp something only the Spirit can reveal. So they choke. They gag. Let me read to you a little bit more of what Jesus says. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. He's saying this to his disciples. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. And so he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Does that not offend you a little bit, Americans? That the only way you can get to God is if he enables you to get to God? That it has not nearly as much to do with your decision as it does with God's decision. And that doesn't seem fair. Because he might choose some people and not others or whatever. We have mysteries there. I always go on this one. We, We come into this world, we're born into this world, looking for someone who is already looking for us. I don't know, there's a mystery there. But there's stuff in this text right here that might offend some of us. There's the mention of the devil. Oh, who believes in the devil? Well, Jesus did. You know, there's, there's stuff in this text that implies that Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other way. And he makes that really clear. John does later in his gospel. Well, that offends. Probably as much as anything today that the Bible would say is that, that offends. I met with the director of the... Uh, Hindu Vedic Center this week, and that was one thing I didn't quote to him. <laughs> kind of want to be his friend a little bit, you know. They use our parking lot, and you know. Um, well, uh, so Jesus offends people. Walk away. I am blessed and cursed with a memory of my pre-Christian days, and. Um, so I, I want to just share this little story that kind of relates here. I was with a friend who was a Christian. I was, this was in college, and we were um, driving on I-5, going through Seattle. This is, I can still remember the picture of it in my mind, but going south, we, had, we, we were both from Olympia, so driving, driving through Seattle. And we got into this conversation, and we were talking. He was, he was always kind of um, trying to get me to... I guess he was successful. I became a Christian, but he was always trying to get me there, you know? And um, he was really good about it. 
But we were talking, and I said, I remember making this statement. This is, this is the first part I really remember is, you know, Christianity, it really is a good way of life. I, and I, I granted him that. And in response to that, he said, yeah, Mark, it is a good way of life. But it's not just that. It is life. And then he said, Jesus is life. And then you need to read John's gospel, and you'll understand more. Well, little did I know, you know, however many years later, here I am. Um, but I, I did read John's gospel, and I did find it very offensive at the time because of these kind of statements that Jesus makes about himself. They're over the top. I mean, who says that kind of stuff? <laughs> Eat my flesh, drink my blood? I didn't know anybody. I mean, the people I knew said, let's go have a beer, you know? Can't live with that, but eat my flesh, drink my blood. So um, I do remember that conversation, and I remember these thoughts, these these um, th- the thoughts of the, those times being something like, I, "I'm good with Jesus. I just need to be in control of my life. <laughs> I'm not going to just. I mean, this this individualism thing runs pretty deep in my family and." And me, and I mean, to give up your life to somebody, and especially somebody you can't understand, that's hard to understand, and he says things like, drink my butt. I mean, it was hard. Until I came to the point of, of enough pain and realizing that my life's out of control anyway. I mean, what do I have to lose? And considering Jesus and saying yes to him. No longer choking on his words, but learning to eat his words. So, uh, I want to get you, uh, one of my favorite, uh, probably my favorite C.S. Lewis book is called The Great Divorce. And um, actually, let me not put that up there quite yet because it'll ruin it for you. Am I going to do okay here? Go back? Yes, okay. Um, I want to give you the context here. So, the, The Great Divorce has nothing to do with divorce as we use that word most commonly. It has to do with, here, here's, here's the, it's the answer to the question, what would happen if we had a busload of people that were living in hell get on a, get on a bus and go to heaven? And they come to the outskirts of heaven, and that's where all the, the, kind of the, the conversation takes place. So this, this, that's what the great divorce is all about. So on that bus that, in, in that story, was a, a minister of the God, a minister. Can you believe it? A minister in hell. Okay. And um, he gets to the outskirts of heaven and he meets one of his old colleagues, another minister who's living in heaven. And they have this conversation. And apparently, at one time at least, they shared the common belief that Christianity is, is really, and they, are, they were both pastors. There's really a great myth that the Bible can't be trusted, that it's really just a bunch of old stories, and that there was no real resurrection. And apparently the guy that was in heaven, before he died and went to heaven, he changed his mind. And so now he's having this conversation with this pastor from hell. Do you understand all that? I mean, this, this is, okay. So here's how the conversation goes. 
And this is, this is the guy in heaven speaking to the guy who's on the, uh, you know, on the outskirts of heaven, but really is from hell. And the funny, the funny thing, I'll t- before I read it, the funny thing about, the, the, not funny, it's not funny at all, but what happens is nobody from hell really wants, once they go to heaven, they don't want to go, they'd, they'd rather be in hell. That's, that's the punchline of the whole, uh, I highly encourage you reading it, but here we go. Uh, friend, we didn't lose our historic views on faith because we were argued out of them. No, simply we found ourselves in contact with certain current of ideas and we plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. See, this is, this is what in, in uh, places where I've studied, it's called liberal theology. Uh, you water things down enough and you lose the core of it. Anyway, we started automatically saying things like, or that one applause. So, uh, the, the applause of other people. You lose your individuality when you're playing to the audience. Um, we were afraid of crude salvation. As, oh, gee, the idea that you can accept Jesus as your Lord and, and have eternal life would be called crude salvationism. We were afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age didn't agree with the words of Jesus. The spirit of the age was choking on Jesus, but remember that whenever you marry the spirit of the age, you become a widower in the next age or a widow. That's another quote from somebody. I can't remember who. Yeah, well. We were afraid of ridicule. If you believed in this stuff, you're going to get ridiculed. The people that you look up to in the universities and you're trying to to make yourself presentable to are going to laugh at you. And above all, we were afraid of real spiritual fears underneath all of this and the guilt and and hopes. uh, So there was something uh, very real underneath all of that. But that, that says a lot of why people choke on the words of Jesus. All right, let's get to the feeding on Jesus, and we'll close here. Yeah, we're good. This will just take a minute, but listen, okay? So Jesus, I want you to picture this. Who's left? The 12. And Jesus, right? Did the math there. That's good. Well, I'm going to qualify that in a sec, though. Yeah, so there, there's Jesus with the 12. And he turns to them, and there's no sense here of Jesus like, well, looks like my movement's over. Are you guys going to be with me, or am I going to just be all be by myself? It's not, it's not like this self-pity moment for Jesus. But he turns to them, and I think he wants to hear it. It's for them more than for him. He wants to hear it from them. Are you guys going to leave me too? It was one of those poignant moments. And... Um, Jesus, uh, or, or Peter, uh, it's a great moment for Peter. And he, he didn't have many great moments, by the way. Um, but he starts out very minimally. And then, and then he really gets rolling. And um, he's speaking for the 12. And this is why I, I, I qualify the 12. And you've got to know this. That because, and it says right here in the text... That there were tw- there were twelve disciples, but you had, what you really had was the eleventh or eleven, right? And then the twelfth turned out to be of the devil. And Seahawk fans, the twelfth man is not always good. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's right. All right. Yeah, there's some laughs and some groans and. So minimally, or you know, take take the, the really small thing that Peter says here. It does Peter says, "Well, Lord, 
where else can we go? And it, and it sounds like, you know, if you ask your, your, ask my wife to marry me, and she says, oh, I don't have any other options. Might as well stick with you or, you know. Okay, that's reading humor into the text. It's not there. But he starts out minimally. That's the point. And then he goes maximum. And he says, Lord, you have words of eternal life. So he's, he's basically quoting Jesus from what Jesus said earlier. You have words of eternal life. And you are the Holy One of God. Now, so Peter really, this is one of his great confessions of faith. And I, I think knowing Peter and, and knowing the, the, the 12 or 11 or whatever, is that, and you know what happens later, is that they all basically desert Jesus and they're very, they're very flimsy and they're, they're, uh, they're very wishy-washy in their, in their walking with Jesus and um, being people who are solid in their identity in Christ. So here's, here's the point I'm trying to make is that even though they didn't understand everything Jesus was saying, I mean, they probably didn't get it either about the body and the blood and all that stuff. They followed Jesus. And, I mean, what, here, what is it that you choke on, but you can still follow Jesus? It's got to be something, right? In other words, God doesn't just conform to our minds. We conform to his. There's going to always be stuff that you're going to choke on when you read your Bible. It's, it's hard, just like the disciples. It was hard for them. But Lord, where else can we go? Who else has the words of life? Who else is the Holy One from God? <laughs> That's what it means to walk with Jesus. Now, later on, here's the, here's the cool part. This is, this is a great picture. Later on, the things that Jesus said are true. The Spirit comes, and he leads them into understanding, or greater understanding, and you watch Peter go from being this flimsy, you know, the irony of Peter's life is that his name means rock, and he is more like sand, but he becomes more like rock. And he ends up dying for Jesus. For the, I mean, he's solid. His identity, he's received his identity from outside, not from his own thought life. He knows that when Jesus says that he's beloved, he's beloved. And the anxieties of life, whatever they were, seem to have disappeared. Ah, it's beautiful. Okay, I'm done. Let's pray. Open your hearts as we pray. Open your hearts. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. There are areas of my life that I know I need Jesus more than I already have him. That I am half-baked or whatever. Hungry for Jesus to feed upon his words, to feed upon him the living word. Words that don't always make sense and a living word who is way bigger than I can comprehend. Feed me, Lord. Feed your sheep. Feed your people. Feed those who are not running off because your words are too hard. Feed those, Lord, who are with you. Feed us, we pray by your Holy Spirit, solidify our identity. May our anxieties dissipate. Be our Lord, we pray.